long ago in a career far away, I was an English teacher. But rest assured, this is a sermon, not an English lesson, so you're good. But if I were going to teach an English lesson today, I love Isaiah 6 because Isaiah 6 would allow me to explain to my class what an imperative sentence is. And an imperative sentence is a command sentence where the subject of the sentence, you, is understood. It's not spoken, but it's understood. It's a little bit more polite to omit the you. If you say the you in front of the sentence as, as its subject, it's a little bit harsh. But this is a great chapter for teaching imperative sentences. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have five of them uh, for you today. Number one, I would want you to, you to note the stark contrast. I would want you to feel Isaiah's dilemma. Thirdly, I would want you to hear God's question and echo Isaiah's answer. Fourth imperative sentence, I would tell you to preach the message. You preach the message. And the fifth and final imperative sentence in this chapter, I would say you keep preaching the message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, bringing us here, leading us to this point. Such a refreshing time in Sunday school as we studied your word. Such a wonderful time of worship as we lifted our voices together and praised you. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We echo Isaiah in our worship service and we echo Isaiah in the preaching of the word as well. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. First imperative sentence. Note the stark contrast. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. Note the stark contrast. That first sentence, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now I could just stop right here, camp out, and talk about King Uzziah because he was one of the greatest kings that Israel or Judah at this time, had ever seen and would ever see. He reigned longer than David. He reigned longer than Solomon. He reigned longer than Saul. He reigned for 52 years. He was a great king. As a matter of fact, if you want to know more about King Uzziah, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and learn about Uzziah. And I'm not going to read all of this chapter, but I want to read just a few things. I want you to see how great King Uzziah was. All the people of Uzziah, verse 1 of 2 Chronicles chapter 26, all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, 
and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. Verse 3, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, longer than any other king. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. Here's, here's, this is good. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God throughout the lifetime of Zechariah, the teacher of the fear of God. During the time that he sought the Lord, God gave him success. And then verse 6 and 7 tells of some of the military campaigns that King Uzziah had against the Philistines and the uh, Arabs and the Munites and the Ammonites. And Uzziah's fame grew and spread throughout the land. Verse 10 says he had cattle, many cattle, both in the, in the Judean foothills and the plains, and he built, built towers in the desert and dug many wells. And since he was a lover of the soil, he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands. Uzziah had an army equipped for combat and tells about how many soldiers he had. Great military strength. The end of verse 15 says, So his fame spread even to distant places, for he was wondrously helped until he became strong. And it's there that we begin to read of the downfall of King Uzziah, one of the greatest kings of Israel, a king that you probably have not heard so much about, even though he reigned longer than any other king in Israel's history, you probably haven't heard too much about King Uzziah because although he started strong, he did not finish strong. Because when he became strong, he became arrogant, and that's in verse 16. But when he became strong, he grew arrogant, and it led to his own destruction. And I won't go into all the things that transpired, but basically, King Uzziah took upon himself the role of priest and went into the temple. Now remember, Isaiah is alive at this time. Isaiah is a great prophet. He knows that what King Uzziah did here is wrong because King Uzziah is going to try to take on to himself. He's already the king, but he's going to try to take on to himself the role of priest as well. And there's only one prophet, priest, and king. And that's Jesus. And God struck King Uzziah down with leprosy. And he spent the rest of his days in isolation. He started strong, but he ended so poorly. He limped across the finish line. In Isaiah chapter 6, one of the greatest passages of Scripture in the Bible, the great passage that has been used in so many missionary commissioning services. Isaiah chapter 6 begins with almost an afterthought in the year that King Uzziah died. Oh, and by the way, we're not going to hear about King Uzziah anymore in this passage. Note the stark contrast. We talk about this great man, King Uzziah, as compared to the contrast of the Lord of Armies. King Uzziah was a great king of many accomplishments, but compared to God, he's nothing. He's an afterthought. In April, Ryan and I had the awesome privilege of visiting Israel, Jerusalem specifically, and we went 
to the Temple Mount. And it's massive. We went to the Wailing Wall, as it's sometimes called, which is basically just a foundational wall that uh, the temple was actually built on. And we were dwarfed in size compared to the massive stones and structures that really was just the foundation of where the temple once stood. And the temple was massive. And look what Isaiah tells us. Isaiah peels back the scripture, peels back the curtains of heaven, and he shows us what God looks like. And in this vision of God, we see a big God. We see a little man, King Uzziah. We're not going to talk about him anymore. But compared to him, we see a big, awesome God. And the temple was huge. And people would would just be in awe of the temple. As a matter of fact, they were so much in awe of it that they thought that since God lived there and God's presence had been seen to come down into that temple, that it could never be captured, never be conquered. And they began to trust in the temple instead of the God who lived in that temple. But Isaiah says that something filled the temple. And do you know what that something was? It wasn't God himself because God is way too big to fit. Even though that's a massive temple, God is way too big to fit in anything made by man's hands. It was not the Lord filling the temple. It was not even the Lord's robe filling the temple. It was the hem of his garment. Are you getting a, you getting a picture now? You're getting a perspective of how big God is? This massive temple where we would worship God, where the Jews worshiped God, that's not what filled the temple. Not God himself, not his robe, but the hem of his garment filled the temple. And just to make sure that you got the point, Isaiah says that the angels called to one another, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Not just the temple, not just Jerusalem, not just Israel and Judah and that area, but the whole earth, God's glory. Awesome God. Stark contrast. Also notice that there's a contrast in posture. King Uzziah is dead. He's laying flat. He's prone. On the other hand, God is seated on his throne. And when God is Seated on his throne, that means all things are complete and he is in control. Uzziah was still. He would never move again. He was dead. God is active and engaged. We see that in this passage. We see that Uzziah is dead, but God is alive and active. Uzziah sleeps in the silence of death. But as Weston said, this is a loud scene. There are thousands of of angels who are calling holy, holy, holy. And the scriptures say that the foundations of the temple shook. It was so loud. The focus here is on heaven, not on earth. The focus here is on God, not on man. Even though King Uzziah was a a great man. So note the stark contrast. But I want you to, second imperative sentence now, feel Isaiah's dilemma. Verse 5. Then Isaiah said, then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips 
And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Boy, that'd be a great confession of sin right there, wouldn't it? Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah gives three reasons why he's feeling this dread, this anguish, this woe. Number one, he recognized his own sinfulness. Number two, he recognized that the people he lived with were sinful. And number three, he realized he had seen God. And when you see God, nothing's ever the same again. And in some way, Isaiah is a precursor for what every single person in the world who has ever lived and will live will face as well. And that is the realization that one day they will see God. And the only appropriate response when you see God is, woe is me, for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Do you feel Isaiah's dilemma? We're in chapter 6, and this is the first time in the book now that Isaiah has actually said anything. These are the first words in Isaiah that he records where he's actually speaking and he says, woe is me. But God's grace leads us from woe is me in verse 5 to here I am in verse 8. These are wonderful words for us too. Note the contrast between holy God and sinful man. Brother Ken has preached to us the many charges against Israel. Israel had abandoned the Lord. Israel had despised the Holy Holy One. Israel had turned their backs on God. There are many descriptions of Israel in chapters 1 through 5. Rebellious children, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquities, a brood of evildoers, depraved children, rulers of Sodom, people of Gomorrah, with bloody hands, adulterers, murderers. And it just reminds me of Psalm chapter 130, verses 3 through 4, where the psalmist says, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. And last week, Brother Ken talked to us about the seven woes, seven specific charges against God's people. And here now, Isaiah is repeating his own personal woe because he realizes that he too is sinful. He realizes that he does live in the midst of a sinful people, but worse than that, he's ruined because he has unclean lips. He cannot save himself. There is nothing he can do to save himself. And so what's the solution? Salvation comes from God. And it is here where we see Christ in Isaiah. We see that And a precursor to what Jesus Christ did for us, an angel from heaven comes down, a messenger from God, and he removes Isaiah's sins and he gives atonement. Salvation is from the Lord and from none other. It is not of ourselves. Give glory to the Lord. Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. There's that word again, glory. Why? Because of your faithful love 
because of your truth. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. I want you to hear God's question. Christian, God has a question for you too. I want you to hear God's question and then I want you to echo Isaiah's answer. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. First first words that Isaiah says in Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King of glory. That's in verse 5, verse 8. Isaiah responds to the call, and he says, Here I am. Send me. Once the question of your salvation has been settled, then the question of mission must be addressed. Once you come to the realization that God has saved you, the next question is, what shall I do for you, Lord? God's question is, who shall I send? Isaiah's answer is, here am I, send me. I want you to compare Isaiah's response to the man we studied in Sunday school this morning, Moses. When Moses was confronted with God out in the desert at the burning bush, God specifically called him to do something. And you remember what Moses' response was? Um, <clears throat> could you find somebody else who speaks better? Now, Moses eventually went. He was obedient, but he was reluctant. He was a reluctant prophet. Isaiah was not reluctant. Isaiah was a volunteer. Contrast Isaiah's response to Jonah's response. You remember when God gave Jonah a specific responsibility and said, I want you to go to the people of Nineveh in Assyria, that great city, and I want you to preach repentance to them. You remember what Jonah did? Jonah took off in the opposite direction. He was a disobedient prophet. Now eventually he came around with a little bit of outside encouragement that the Lord sent him his path. But look at Isaiah. Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. You know, when God says, who should I send? Who will go for us? He wasn't as specific with Isaiah as he was with Moses and with Jonah. Because when he called them, he he specifically called them and he gave them responsibilities. But Isaiah says, I'll volunteer before I know what the mission is. Isaiah knew that once his salvation was settled, then it turns to a question of mission. What are you going to do for the Lord? And which servant of the Lord are you most like? Are you like Moses? Well, reluctantly, I'll do it, Lord. But you know, there are much better qualified people to do this than me. Or are you like Jonah? I can't do that. I don't want to do that. Or are you like Isaiah? Here am I. Send me. And once Isaiah volunteered, once Isaiah stepped up and said, I will do what you want me to do, Lord, God gave him a message. Verses 9-10. through 10. And he, that, that would be God, replied, <coughs> Go. Say to these people, 
Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Now, I will tell you that when the Lord called me to preach, He did not give me this message to you. But if He had, I would have had some questions. I would have I've said, perhaps I would have said, Lord, um, what's the point? If their minds are dull, their ears are deaf, their eyes cannot see, why do you want me to do this? Isaiah didn't ask that. Isaiah was obedient. And you know that this this is not a message that Isaiah wants to preach to his people. At this time, Judah is one of the most powerful, richest nations in the world. And it's been hundreds of years since a foreign army has swept in and done devastation in the land. But God's message to Isaiah to the people was, listen, but don't hear. See, but don't have the vision to know what's really coming. This must have been an exercise in frustration for Isaiah, but it's also an exercise in obedience. Because if everything were easy when we serve the Lord, it doesn't require much faith, and that's the next thing. It's an exercise in faith. Because if it's easy, it doesn't require as much faith. God knew that Isaiah had the faith to be obedient. And so he told him to preach my message. And then he tells him to keep preaching my message. Verse 11. Then I said, until when, Lord? Now Isaiah doesn't say, Lord, this doesn't seem to make sense. Isaiah just wants to know, how long am I going to keep preaching this? Even that answer, even that question, I believe is an honest question that Isaiah is asking Because the message that he has been charged with delivering to the children of Israel is so terrible, he wants to know, how long do I have to preach this? Am I ever going to get to the good news? We looked at Isaiah chapter 1. Ken and I talked about this. We said, man, Isaiah 1 is rough. There's a little glimmer of hope in Isaiah 2. And then it's right back at it in chapters 3 and 4 and 5. And you're going to find that the book of Isaiah is full of judgment. This is not a fun message for a preacher to deliver. This is not something that Isaiah wanted to tell his people. Verse 11, then I said, until when, Lord? How long? How long? And God replies, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again. Like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. This is not good news. For Isaiah, this is an exercise in sadness because God has just told him, preach the message until devastating judgment falls on Israel. For Isaiah, this will be an exercise in faith, obedience, but also tenacity and long-suffering. But it's also an exercise in knowing the nature of God 
Even in the question, until when, Lord? Even though it's a terrible message, Isaiah knows that it is the nature of God to love and to forgive. And so he says, how long? How long do I have to preach this? And the, the Lord says, you've got to preach this until the land is desolate. It's like a desert. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a besieged city, like a, vin- like a shack in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field. Israel is like a garden without water, like an oak with withered leaves that is then set on fire, and there's no one to put the fire out. This passage is similar to Psalm chapter 90, verses 11 through 13, where Moses says this to God. He says, Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Lord, how long? You hear that? Isaiah is echoing that. How long? How long do I have to preach this, Lord? Moses says, Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion on your servants. Do you know how bad the devastation is? It's like Murfreesboro. If Murfreesboro was the subject of God's wrath and the same decree had been placed on Murfreesboro, basically what God is saying, of the 120,000 people in Murfreesboro, 108,000 are going to be taken captive, killed, or sent far, far away. Only 12,000 will remain. Oh, and by the way, of the 12,000 who remain, after they are in the land trying to survive on what's left, then a great fire is going to come and decimate them even further. Now, I've talked about Murfreesboro, but I can't help but compare our country to Israel. Like Israel, we, we have known God. And in many ways, we have served God. Now, the United States is not Israel, but I see similarities. Like Israel, we have known the miraculous deliverance over and over. Our nation has been blessed. Our nation has survived now for well over 230 years. And in the the history of modern nations, that is forever. That is a long time. Like Israel, though, we have forsaken the God of our fathers. Like Israel, we have sacrificed our sons and daughters to the false God of choice. Like Israel, we have not pursued justice and had compassion on widows and orphans. And like Isaiah, I can say of myself, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. It's not just my people, it's me. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And yet, like Isaiah, I can say, and I hope you can say too, in answer to God's questions, whom, question, whom shall I send? I hope that you can say with me, here I am, Lord. Send me. Yesterday as I prepared this message, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts called The Land in the Book, and we referenced it in the weekly newsletter, The Buzz. It's just a great podcast. It's a weekly podcast. You can listen to it anytime. It's just so good. And in the podcast yesterday, Dr. Charlie Dyer, he tells the story of Bill Borden. Borden's condensed milk. Familiar with Borden? 
Bill Borden was the heir to the Borden fortune, a vast amount of money. But to Bill Borden, that was really of, of little consequence, little use, because he loved Jesus and wanted to serve him with all his life. And so, in spite of much discouragement and much criticism, as a matter of fact, one of Bill's friends was quoted as saying, I cannot believe he's going to throw his life away as a missionary. And despite of all that, Bill persevered. Bill Borden persevered. And he took his Bible and he wrote in the back of his Bible these, these words. No reserves. Upon his graduation from Yale, because he was from a rich family, he could go to any school that he chose to, upon his graduation from Yale, he was offered, Bill Borden was offered several lucrative positions. But he persevered in his calling and decided to go to seminary. And at this time, he wrote in the back of his Bible, under no reserves, he wrote this, no retreats. And Bill set out to reach an unreached people group, a group of Muslims in China. He set sail for the east, stopped in Egypt so that he could learn Arabic to better communicate the good news of the gospel to these Chinese Muslims. And it was there in Egypt, at the age of 25, that Bill Borden, heir to the Borden fortune, millionaire, Christian, missionary, contracted spinal meningitis and died. Was his life a waste? Some would see it that way. Bill's friends and companions packed up his belongings and shipped him back to America. And once they arrived back in America, someone found his Bible. And below the words, no reserves and no retreats, Bill had written these words, no regrets. Christian, God has a question for you. Whom shall we send? Who will go? I hope that you can answer. Here am I. Send me. No reserves. No retreats. No regrets. Father, you're so good to us. You've placed us here in a nation of so much with so many blessings, not just physical, but spiritual blessing, a heritage of faith. Ah, but to whom much is given, much is required. And we fit in that category. Lord, help us to answer. Here am I, send me. Send us, Lord.